Our scripture reading for today is Mark 5, verses 21 to the end. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This morning you'll want to keep your Bibles open. We have a lengthy passage, and we're going to walk carefully through it verse by verse together. Uh, a passage that is a continuation of our sermon series in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, together. We've spent the past few weeks here at the end of chapter 4 and now moving into chapter 5 and through the end of this passage together, and we've had three different episodes, each with a lot of detail. Mark adds more detail as he walks through these than really many of the other episodes that he uh, offers during the course of his Gospel account. In these recent episodes, we have what last week I called the the trilogy of power. We have the calming of the storm, this natural circumstance where the the mind is confronted by anxiety and fear. It's a, a sort of test of faith to trust the presence of the Lord in the pressing reality of impending death. 
a natural circumstance. And then we have his authority where Jesus overcomes demonic power. In last week's passage, we have the suffering of the soul under the weight of evil and sin. We see the Lord intervene with compassion in that circumstance as well, with authority to rescue a man from the power and the presence of evil. Okay, and then today we come to this third episode in this trilogy of power with the healing of a woman and the raising of a young girl from the dead. Jesus overcomes disease and death, sickness and pain. And we have the sickness of the body with the pain of death and the Lord intervening to bring about wholeness. A wholeness not only to the mind, as we saw two weeks ago, not only to the soul, as we saw last week, but also to the very body that he rescues. Friends, this morning we need to hear about Jesus' power, but as we'll see, we get something far greater than that. We get something far greater than the power of Jesus on display. This morning, we have the presence of Jesus being made known and entering into relationship with him on display by his grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in the next few moments that you would give us what we need to hear, to believe, to understand, and be transformed by your word this morning. We trust you for this in the midst of your word. We pray that you would help not only the one who preaches, but also those who hear, that all of us together would receive you. And by grace through faith, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're gonna begin by walking carefully through the story itself. Like I said, it's a lengthy narrative. We're gonna walk through it verse by verse to just make sure that we see what is there that would receive it, and then we're going to end our time by reflecting upon four aspects of faith and grace that are at work in the midst of the passage. So we're going to look at this episode of healing and raising as we work our way through together. We begin right at the beginning of this passage from Mark chapter 5. We'll begin by looking at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Here we have it again. Jesus is gathering on just getting off the boat. We've seen him do this a few times, crossing back and forth across the sea, and he's met again by a crowd, a throng that's pressing in around him. He's met by yet another crowd, and one of the first people that he meets when he gets off the boat, surely it would seem that their, their boats were moving on before Jesus. Each time he leaves, it's like this group goes on before him, and they prepare the crowd to come and meet him. And one of the first groups of people that he meets is Jairus and the people who are with him. Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. It's been suggested that he was probably the, a sort of synagogue president. He seems to be the chief ruler of the synagogue in this place. He falls at Jesus' feet and he begins to beg Jesus for help. Now that's interesting because this isn't always the disposition of the people in the region, particularly those who are religious in the region. There is a bit of division that is growing up around Jesus in the synagogue and among the religious leaders of the day. There is 
while there's division and there's some discord about how to approach this Jesus, this rabbi in the region who's doing incredible things, his word is moving about. While that is true, there's division, there's also desperation. And this is how Jairus comes to Jesus. He comes to him in desperation. Look at verse 23 with me. In 23, it says, He implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him, My little daughter. This man is desperate. He doesn't care about divisions. He doesn't care about the concerns of the day or perhaps even the political wrangling of the elites. He's desperate for his little daughter and he goes to the healer. It's really a very simple narrative in that way. Do we have any doubt that, this, that Jesus would go with Jairus? Do we have any doubt that this is exactly the response that Jesus would have? Jesus doesn't harbor a bitter thought. He's not going to enter into the political wranglings and say, oh, so now you come to me, right? No, Jesus simply goes with him. And he doesn't use this as a moment to generate any sort of political favor. Jesus hears a cry for mercy and he responds by going with the man in grace. He hears and he goes. That's where the, it seems like the next thing would be. And then he arrived at the house of Jairus, right? Isn't that the next paragraph? Let's check and see. Let's see what happens. A great crowd followed him, thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She'd suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had and was no better, but grew worse. Where Jairus walked right up, right up to Jesus, this woman is just one of the faces in the crowd. I think that's one of the important things in the passage. You see, she'd suffered much. This disease had been with her for 12 years. She'd suffered much. And she was unclean. Make no mistake, she was unclean. She was ritually unclean. She couldn't be touched without the person who touched her becoming themselves unclean. She couldn't gather for worship in the temple or the synagogue. It's been suggested if she was married, she's probably divorced at this point, or else everyone in her household would be unclean. She'd suffered failed cures. I, I had a note in uh, my other Bible that uh, w- from when we walked through this uh, about 10 years ago that she'd suffered not only from the disease, but she'd suffered from the many cures. That's not unheard of. I've heard it suggested that some of the cures are worse than the, the disease. And that seems to be the case for her. She'd, these failed cures had brought so much sorrow to accompany the disease. And it also brought financial loss. Each new doctor came with more loss. And being unclean, she likely had no means of financial gain. So she was destitute. She was in the situation of genuine poverty. Not only had she lost everything, she had no means of gaining again. And now she hears reports about Jesus. What was she thinking? What is she thinking when she sees Jesus walking through the crowd? 
Well, what are the reports that she was hearing? She was hearing reports in the region of a calm storm. Like, that doesn't happen. But there were boats around the disciples' boats on that day, if you remember the passage. She hears reports as the boats are coming back across the sea of a demon-possessed man who was raging and wild and incurable, right? She hears reports that the demon was cast out. What was she thinking? She's thinking this isn't just another doctor. She'd heard about the power of Jesus, but she had heard, but the, really the question for us is, while she'd heard the power of Jesus, had she heard the gospel that he preached? Let's remember that the gospel of Mark begins not only with Jesus doing great works, but begins with the explicit statement that Jesus came in order to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. She had heard reports of his miracles. But did she hear the report of the gospel that he came to preach? What was she thinking? Well, we're actually told what she thought. We don't have to guess too much. Look at verse 28. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. The teacher won't even have to stop. He won't have to take any time with her unclean self, that even if she's healed, she's still unclean at that moment, right? She's just going to touch him, and there's going to be no fees like with all the other doctors. She'll just take care of this quickly. The only cost will be the pain of another failed cure if it doesn't work out. All she has to do is reach out and touch him. And what happens? Look at verse 29 with me. Immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt her body in her body that she was healed of her disease. She was healed. She reaches out and where she was diseased, she's no longer diseased. She touches him and she's healed. Now, one of the greatest mistakes that we can make with our understanding of spiritual things, and particularly miracles, is to adopt a sort of, uh, a, a sort of magical understanding of the miracles of Jesus. That is, to treat the miraculous as if it was some sort of physics, right? If you do this thing, and then you say these words, and then you touch this cloth, then bam, through that sort of means, right? That sort of behavior, through those words and that touch, bam, you get a miracle. It's the same mistake that this woman is making in our passage today. It's to treat Jesus as a physician. Or worse yet, to treat him like some sort of prescription. You know, take two of these and pray to me in the morning. But that isn't the way that Jesus works. That's not the way that spiritual things work. It isn't magic. There isn't some magical process that we have to go through in order to obtain some predetermined result. What we will see with Jesus' mercy is that he is there to more than simply to heal the woman. He's also there to correct her understanding of who he is by bringing her into relationship. Now, the fact is, our God reigns. It's actually in this passage. It's fascinating. You see, there's not one thing that happens on the universe that's not subject to his sovereign rule. Not one thing. 
And so that means on that day, when a woman is in a crowd and she's hoping that Jesus would make his way close enough that she could press forward just enough in order to touch his garment, on that day, the Lord our God is sovereign. The woman isn't sovereign because she did certain behaviors to achieve some predetermined result. The Lord our God is sovereign. This woman was healed not because she touched a garment, but because the Lord had willed it. She was healed because God our Father willed it so. That's the way the universe functions. Jesus has the power to heal. It's not some sort of magical physics. It's glory and grace. Every time we begin to treat miracles or spiritual things as some sort of magical physics, we're entering into the realm of sorcerers that are heresy throughout the whole of the scriptures. But rather, we live in a universe, not of sorcery, not of magic, not of sort of spiritual physics. We live in a world of glory and grace. Throughout the gospel account, we see that Jesus is willing to heal. He enters into some sort of relationship with each of the persons that he heals. And here's the fascinating thing that struck me the most about this passage. That each time he enters into a relationship with the person that he heals... Each time, he addresses their faith. It isn't enough that they're healed, but he does something in relationship with them. Here's what he does in our passage today in verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, "'Who touched my garment?' Now, that's not needed. Let's be clear. The deed is done. If it was just magic, if it was just physics, then it already took place and Jesus should just keep on walking. What an odd question to say, though. Who touched me? You might not think that the Christ would say something like that, but probably that's because we have an erroneous understanding of the nature of the Christ. You see, we confess that Jesus is God the Son and son of man. I don't think I can put it better than R.C. Sproul, so I'm not going to try. We're just going to read him. Here's how he puts it. Simply put, in the incarnation, in Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus' divine nature lost none of its attributes. He is fully God. His divine nature stayed divine. Likewise, the human nature stayed human. The human nature was not deified, and the divine nature was not humanized. The way that I reflect on that is Jesus learned Aramaic and Hebrew. He learned how to talk. He learned how to move from liquid foods and being nurtured to solid foods, and he learned how to crawl and walk all in his flesh. Do you think that God doesn't know how to walk? No, but in his flesh, he learned these things. So Jesus, the man, 
knows that the Father has healed this woman by the touch of his robe. He knew that something had happened, but that does not mean that Jesus, in his flesh, knew what her face looked like or what her name was. And so he asks her. He asks her to come forward. More than that, Jesus is calling the woman out of her anonymity and into relationship. And that's the key, friends. That's the key. You see, Jesus had something more for her than that she would be cleansed of her uncleanness. Because imagine, she could be healed and not know Jesus. The disciples, they have no time for this. They don't have time for relationship. They see the desperation of Jairus. Why does Jesus do stuff like this, they might say. And the woman, in verse 33, in spite of the disciples and others pressing around him, the woman, in verse 33, it says, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. Told, I love that word, the whole truth truth. She tells the whole story. She tells of how she was unclean. She tells how she'd suffered for 12 years, how she was diseased and despairing, how she tried everything and how she'd lost everything. But she came and she reached out to Jesus. And Jesus, I just thought in my mind that if I just touched you, I would be healed. Well, what does Jesus hear when people say stuff like this to him? So you're just going to use me for my power and go on around your way. What does Jesus think? What does Jesus mind about people like this? People like you and me who have come to Jesus and we've just cried out for a little bit of help, for a little bit of cure, for a little bit of rescue from a time of trouble. What does Jesus hear when people say stuff like this? When we tell the whole truth? Well, we're told what he thinks. Matthew chapter 5, it's one of the best scriptures that we can go to to understand the relationship between our God and weak people like ourselves. In Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. How did this woman come to Jesus? You don't get any more impoverished than she is, and we're not talking about finances anymore. She is poor in spirit. She is desperate, mourning and meek. And when Jesus hears confessions like this from a woman like this, his response is what? To pronounce blessing. Blessed are because this is the way of the kingdom. Now let's remember, the synagogue ruler came to Jesus because his 12-year-old daughter was at her last breath. Her last breath. The word is actually eschaton. This is the last things of his daughter. And Jesus stops. Why? Can't he go... Can he just say, Father, tell me who, who she is and, and tell me which house she's in or which desert place she's hiding in and I'll go to her after I take care of this little girl. Why does Jesus stop? Look at verse 34. And friends, I highlight this, 
put stars back. I'd like to put a cross in the margin because there's gospel in this passage. Verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You see, the healing of this woman's disease was a miracle. It's cause for rejoicing. It's cause for fear and awe at the glorious power of Jesus. But the greatest miracle in this passage is one word. It's the word daughter. You see, Jairus had a daughter to save, and he was desperate. He would go to great lengths, even to go to this weird rabbi Jesus, who was a bit on the outs with all the other religious leaders of the day. He would go in desperation to go and save his daughter, and Jesus stopped. Why? We're told why. He had a daughter to save. Jesus had a daughter in that crowd. And it wasn't enough that he would see her healed, but he would see her restored and brought into relationship with him. To my understanding, this is the only time that Jesus looks at a woman in the eyes in the scripture and calls her daughter. What a powerful moment. The most destitute woman we can find in the gospels. And she's daughter brought into relationship with our Lord. This woman was lost, unclean, and destitute, and daughter. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what Jesus thinks. When people come to him in desperation like this, when you come to him in desperation like this, he thinks, daughter. Jesus took this woman's faith, And he gave her something greater than what she even knew to ask for. Was she looking for this encounter? No. Explicitly no. She was looking to avoid this encounter with Jesus. If I just reach out and touch him, he can keep walking and I can be healed. But Jesus gives her something greater. Her faith was looking for healing. But Jesus gave her grace. He gave her peace. And just like he told the sea, not only to be still, but to stay still, he made the bleeding cease. And he tells the bleeding to remain that way as he brings her into fellowship with himself. This is good. Until we read the next words. The next words of our passage, verse 35. While they, he was still speaking, in the same sentence in which he calls this woman daughter, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It turns out the disciples' frustration was justified. It turns out that Jairus's fears were realized. This woman, this daughter is healed, but Jairus' daughter, Jairus's daughter is dead. We'll look at that closer in a moment, but note this. Jairus came to Jesus with a desperate plea. That plea came with a particular kind of faith and a particular depth of faith, a a specific expectation from Jesus. It's the kind of faith that desperation will breed, but it's just as fleeting as hope is thin. Jairus came to Jesus with a particular kind of faith. But now, 
after stopping to call the diseased woman into relationship, but at the same time failing to get to Jairus' home in time, what Jesus does is he calls Jairus to a new depth of faith. Jairus came with one expectation, and instead he gets this word in verse 36 from Jesus. Do not fear, only believe. I have to think, Jairus is thinking, I was That's why I was here. You see, I came with a kind of faith that expected that you would come and heal my daughter. And you didn't do it. Instead, you stopped and you healed this woman in the crowd. But it's right there in the middle of that that Jesus is going to give Jairus more than he came for. And he tells Jairus, Peter, James, and John to come with him. They go to Jairus' house in verse 38. What a scene, professional mourners. They'd all arrived. It was common practice, particularly among the wealthy and influential, to hire musicians and mourners to weep and lament loss. They had already arrived at Jairus' home. They were already getting about their business. When Jesus arrives, he interrupts the proceedings and he announces the child is not dead but sleeping. And the professional mourners cease their lament and they begin to laugh. They know what death looks like and that body, it has no life in it. And Jesus kicks them out of the house. He has no more use for them. And he knows that this mother and father have no use for them any longer either. Jesus, the father, the mother of the little girl, Peter, James, and John, they enter the room where the child's body is and they hear Jesus take her hand and say these words, Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. Peter, who recounted this story to our gospel writer, Mark. And as, as Mark records it in great detail, he remembered the very words that Jesus had spoken to this little girl. Surely this is one of the most precious moments Peter had ever witnessed. I wonder if Peter wept, as I'm tempted to do this morning, when he recalled the words, Talitha Kumi. He remembered the words and they're recorded for us today. You see, Jesus has already touched one unclean person on that day. And now he reaches out and he touches the corpse of this little girl. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean at the touch of death, her body warms. She rises and she walks. Everyone in the room is amazed, we're told. And what we find and we're going to see played out increasingly in the coming days in our passages through Mark, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That when he touches disease, disease is the thing that has to flee. And when Jesus touches death, even death has to flee. This is our confession, our hope in life and death, right? Now, in verse 33, our passage ends kind of mysteriously, maybe a bit unexpectedly. He charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. We see Jesus do this often in his, in his ministry in Judea. 
We see him tell the person that he's healed not to tell anyone. Just last week, as he was in the more Gentile region of the Decapolis, he told the man to go and tell all of the cities about him. But here he tells them not to tell anyone. There's something that he's doing in Israel that would be derailed if news like this would travel too far. Now, this is important. As beautiful and merciful as Jesus' miraculous works are here, as much as they are a display of his power, they're remembered and recounted at a later date for us, as much as they bring life and hope, they are not the center of Jesus' mission. If they were the center of his mission, he would broadcast that center. Jesus is here explicitly to preach and to perform the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. We see Jesus' compassion and mercy so clearly in our passage and other passages like it. We see how great a mercy and grace must be present in the midst of this great gospel. Just compare these two women. These two women's lives could not have been any more different Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. The passage tells us in verse 42, she was 12 years old. The woman had suffered for 12 years. Jairus' daughter had grown up likely in a safe home. She was well provided for. She grew up in the shadow of the synagogue with worship, surely often present in her home. And this woman had spent 12 years isolated, destitute, cut off from all the congregation of worshipers. In these two women, we have a contrast between the unclean and the clean, the old and the young, the poor and the rich, the outcast and the influential. We have these two extremes, and we see Jesus touch them both. We have image upon image of the glory of the gospel, that in spite of these contrasts, in both episodes, we have the same Jesus. His mercy and his grace are sufficient for the day. No matter what the expectation is of those who come to him, his grace is sufficient for what he has for them. And so what I want to do is I want to spend just a few moments making four observations from our passage regarding faith and grace. We begin by the observation of desperate faith. You've hopefully seen that already. How often are our cries to God prompted by a great season of suffering? Surely there are more prayers rising in this last year and a half than even our congregation has prayed in the past. How often has our cries been, Lord, have mercy? We see that pattern throughout the scriptures as well. In times of desperation, the people's cries begin to rise to God. Kent Hughes, he says, despair is commonly the prelude to grace. So many have come to Jesus in the first place in a season of despair and need, and perhaps that was you. Perhaps you first came to Jesus in a season of despair, whether it was the diseased woman or Jairus, both of them came to Jesus at a place of desperation, a sort of last resort. And here's the thing, 
That's the way we have to come. That's the way that faith works. We can't come to Jesus hedging our bets. See, faith doesn't come to Jesus and say, I hope Jesus will help, but that would be easy, wouldn't it, if he just sort of made everything go away. But if that doesn't work, I'm sure I can try something else. That's not the way that faith works. You see, Jesus isn't a crutch. Jesus is ICU. Jesus brings us to that place and we cry out, Lord, Lord, you alone have mercy. There is no other help. We come to the end of ourselves when we come to Jesus in faith. That is the nature of faith. Once we come to truly understand faith, we will discover that at the heart of faith is the confession that apart from Jesus, I have no hope. Faith is by its very definition desperate. And so if you are desperate and you cry out to Jesus, friends, you are in the right place. We have not only a desperate faith in this passage, but we also have an immature faith. Look at the way these people come to him. There's so much that isn't quite right about both of our encounters with Jesus this morning. For instance, the woman thinks that she can get healing with Jesus without actually having to encounter Jesus. She can get some benefit from Jesus without any relationship with him. She's willing to have the power without the relationship. Jesus, he's not going to have anything of it. She's confronted by the power. She receives the power. But he comes to her calling her daughter. She comes for power and what she receives is grace. Jairus is the synagogue ruler. Jesus isn't expecting any gain in popularity in any of these circles, but Jairus is in desperate need. When Jairus' servants come, they make it clear that it's too late for him to get what he came for. But Jesus will have nothing of it. You see, Jesus confronts Jairus with a call to faith, and it's a call that's beyond what Jairus came to Jesus for, do you see? Jairus came for one thing, but what Jesus has for him is a call to faith. Verse 34 says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Both the woman and Jairus came to Jesus with a faith that is very narrow, very particular. It's a desperate faith, but that doesn't make it a sufficient faith to perform some great deed. How can Jesus say that her faith made her well? Does faith have that kind of power, especially a narrow and particular faith? This is a tragic misunderstanding of Jesus' words and the nature of faith itself. You see, faith is trust. Faith is to believe. It's the same word, faith, belief. Faith doesn't do anything. Faith is not effective. Effective. It can't effect anything. But it is instrumental. That is, faith is not the effective means by which she is healed, 
But faith brought her to Jesus. And Jesus healed her. And Jesus makes that connection for her. By your faith, you're healed. It's by faith that the woman takes hold of grace that's far more than she could have imagined, you see. She comes to Jesus in faith, and Jesus gives her not what her faith grasped for. He gives her grace, and grace is effective. It's like saying, your, when you say your faith has made you well and mean it effectively, it's like saying your spoon has made you full. It's true. Your spoon brought the food, brought the meal to your lips. A spoon is an instrument that a person can use to cure hunger, but it's not the substance of the cure. Faith is the instrument by which the woman is healed, but the substance of her healing is grace and power of Jesus Christ. Thank God that he comes to us in such a way that even our desperate, even our immature, even our lack of understanding faith can take hold of infinite grace. You see, none of us have a, a spoon of faith sufficient to hold infinite grace. And so we come to Jesus. And he gives abundant grace. This morning, I would call you to faith, trust in the Lord. May you come to an understanding of who he is, what he has done, so that your faith is ever increasing. As we see what the Lord does by grace, our faith is increased, and we say, I want that. And he says, oh no, there's more. Infinite and sufficient. And what we find is third, compassionate grace. Our desperate, immature faith finds compassionate, abundant grace. In this world, there's much suffering. I've seen it firsthand among friends and family. Not all of those who have suffered have been healed of their diseases. In our passage, it's glorious, isn't it, to see this woman healed? And we might be asking a justifiable question. Does, the, does Jesus, does he care about me? Is it possible that the real power of this passage is when Jesus calls her daughter? That the relationship that Jesus enters into with the woman is the same relationship that Jairus has with his daughter. It's my understanding of the miracles of Jesus and the apostles and others in the early church is that the primary purpose is to put on a visual display the infinitely glorious grace but invisible reality of forgiveness of sin and right relationship with our God. There is an infinite grace that is to be found there. We have this public display recorded for us in the scriptures. This doesn't mean that the Lord is, has any less compassion on us. Neither does it mean that we ought not to come to the Lord in our desperation, in our need, in our desperation and immature faith to ask him at the greatest times of our need. And the Lord is still merciful to this day. We're often told in the word to pray for those who are sick. We're often told to trust in his grace and his sovereign provision in both life and in death, and we do. 
but we also possess the fullness of the scriptures. This means that we possess access to the glorious hope of God's presence with us today, today, to call us child, and an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us by a redeemer, Jesus Christ. To put it frankly, our, our hope is not that we would go on living in this life forever. Friends, that's not hope. That's a tragedy. Our hope is that we would not be healed constantly of every disease. Our hope is that we would know our maker and be called by him, child, raised from the dead, our hope of glory. His mercy and grace will meet us there. Is, is that a confidence that we have because of this scripture recorded for this church today? We have compassionate grace. And finally, we have something that honestly I didn't expect to find in the passage, but it's there. It's probably the most compelling thing in the passage. We have compassionate discipleship. Jesus is a disciple maker in this passage. The diseased woman came to Jesus with a desperate need and a deficient view of Jesus. Do you see it? Jairus came to Jesus with a clear request, but in both cases, Jesus brought the woman and Jairus and the whole of his household and Peter, James, and John to a deeper relationship and a greater trust than they had when the scene began. When we come to Jesus, we may not find exactly what we came to him for, but this is grace. It's compassionate grace that what we find when we find Jesus is a compassionate disciple maker. For those who seek the Lord, we will find him. And when we find him, we will find him infinitely glorious and infinite in grace. By nature, we know nothing of such grace and glory. And in our nature, we come to him. But it is the compassionate discipleship of Jesus that he will bring us along to know him. And that bringing along will so often be right in the midst of our seasons of desperation and immaturity. And he meets us right there. And he says unexpected words. And he brings us into relationship with him. You see, the fact is you and I are weak desperate, immature, and in need. Even more than our suffering, our disease, and death, we suffer the affliction of sin and rebellion against our Creator. In this moment in history, we have much cause to cry out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy. But the grace of our God is not only to hear our cry of suffering, but also to see the deeper need for forgiveness of sin, reconciliation, and grace. How often have we cried out to the Lord for one narrow thing? And what he is gracious to give is abundant. The Lord will not always heal our body, and he will never heal our body and at the same time leave us out of fellowship with him. That's the grace of our God to bring us into relationship 
with himself. This morning, if such a narrow view, a desperate, immature faith as the people in our passage is in you, cry out to the Lord in your desperation and in your immaturity. Cry out to the Lord. Jesus, come today. If this is where you are, count it a blessing when you face trials of many kinds. For it's in this season that Jesus is bringing our faith to perfection and completion that we didn't even know anything about. That we would not lack anything. What we'll find is it's in those times of desperation that we have a gift. That though we come to Jesus in ways that are that seeks specific results according to our own design. He's merciful to give us more than we asked for or imagined. And all of a sudden, the scriptures speak with a unified voice about the nature of grace. And I want to close with this scripture from Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him, Jesus, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we pray together that you would work your infinite grace your sufficient substance of our healing. That we would not be healed in this life only, but we would be restored to righteous relationship with our God. Lord, I pray that we would increase in our faith to long for you. That we would long more than that our bodies would be touched or our hearts comforted, but that we would hear you call us your child your daughter, your son. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you don't leave us in our narrow view of you, but you are the consummate disciple maker. That you bring us not only into relationship, but you increase our sight of you. I pray that in the midst of the trials of various kinds that we are in today, that you would bring us to faith in yourself according to the working of your abundant grace. And Lord, if that would mean this morning in a cry of desperation, in the cry of poverty of spirit, someone here would cry out to you in faith for the first time, I pray that you would work that grace. Work the grace to save. And at the same time, there are many in this room who have cried out to you many times before. And our cry is, Lord, have mercy. And you have grown us. And you have strengthened us. You have comforted us. And you have encouraged us. Give us a greater sight of you today, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus, our precious Redeemer and friend, we pray. Amen.